I want to say what a privilege it is to be with you here at Bethlehem Church this weekend. I'm not typically a real introspective person. I'm not analytical as a rule of how I'm feeling and so forth, but I have to tell you that I have great love in my heart this morning and just feel very thankful as we walked up and saw the people coming into the house of God. It just touched me deeply to see such enthusiasm, such a wide variety of age groups, the old and the young, and to know that there was zeal and interest in the Word of God and the worship of Jesus Christ. It just touched me deeply, and I feel very honored to be here this morning. I love your pastor very much and uh, appreciate his friendship and his fellowship in the gospel. And it's a privilege for me to share pulpit duties with Elder Josh Coker this weekend. And I'm just really encouraged with his uh, preaching. I enjoyed his sermon on being committed to the cause of Christ this morning, and it made me want to be more committed myself. When he said he was a pinch hitter this weekend, I remembered something Elder Paul Jones said to me about 40 years ago in my early pastoral ministry in the state of Georgia. I'd invited Elder Danny Parker to preach a, a meeting, and Brother Danny had to uh, had to decline at the last minute, and Elder Jones was willing to come and preach at the church where I was trying to serve. And um, Brother Paul said when he got in the pulpit, he said, I'm not playing second fiddle, I'm first runner-up. <laughs> and uh, so, Brother Josh, you're first runner-up. And... Uh, you know, the, we're, you did a good job. I sure enjoyed your preaching. Look forward to your afternoon message this afternoon. Would you join me in the Holy Scriptures in the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles? And I want to read the prologue to the Acts of the Apostles, which consists of the first 11 verses in Acts chapter 1 as we speak on the theme, the book of Acts in three acts. And let's begin reading now in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandment unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power 
after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven." Now, I stated this is the prologue to the Acts of the Apostles. Just as Romans 1, 1 to 17, where Brother Josh was for a few moments this morning, is the prologue to the book of Romans, just as John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is the prologue to the Gospel of John. A prologue is an introduction. And one of the features of New Testament prologues to a letter or a book in the Bible is that they seem to encapsulate or encompass the entire message of the book in a summary form. It's a distillation and a crystallization of the message of the book. And I suggest in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 in the prologue section, we have the message of the book of Acts in a summary form. And here is a three-act play. This letter, the book of Acts, is a story about how Jesus went up. That's Act 1. We see that in verses 9 through 11 the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's the story, secondly, of how the Holy Spirit came down. You see that in verses 4 to 6. Also in verse 8, the promise of the Father, which shall come upon you. You shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Jesus went up, that's act one. The Holy Spirit came down, that's act two. And the church went out. You see that in verse number eight. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I see a series or think of a series of concentric circles when I read that verse where you have a small circle in the middle and it gets larger as you make the, the turn and then larger again. And what begins as a small nucleus of believers in Jerusalem grows to infiltrate the entire Mediterranean world by the time that Acts chapter 28 is completed, the church went out. That's Act 3. And I suggest the entire book of Acts can be summarized in these three acts. Now, notice the letter begins the former treatise. 
have I made, O Theophilus? And it is generally agreed that Luke is the human writer of the Acts of the Apostles. And the reason is because his gospel account, the gospel according to Luke in your New Testament, addresses itself to the same man, a man named Theophilus. For instance, in Luke chapter 1, if you'll listen to the way that this begins, Luke chapter 1, verse number 1, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, says Luke, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seems good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Luke says, I, I know what happened from the very beginning. To write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. And there's that name again. That thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So notice both letters are addressed to this individual named Theophilus. And I suggest that uh, Theophilus, I believe, was an actual person. Now, you might disagree with that. Some people say Theophilus is a pseudonym representing Christians in general, because the word is a compound word of two Greek words, Phileo, which is the root, of, or the suffix, gives us our word for brotherly love or friendship love. And theos, which is the prefix, is the word for God. So Theophilus means literally either beloved by God or a lover of God. And of course, that could apply to all believers, couldn't it? We're beloved by God, aren't we? And we are lovers of God. So that could be a pseudonym for Christians in general. But notice he uses the particular official designation in the Gospel of Luke, most excellent Theophilus. And the fact that he uses a term which was applied to dignitaries, and magistrates and officials most excellent would be like us saying your highness or your honor to a judge. Most excellent Theophilus indicates that this was probably a believer who occupied some high political or civil office. And you say, well, why would Luke be writing a letter addressed to him? Because it was common in the early days when a document was to be in the public domain to address it to a particular civil official or leader. You know, your King James Bible has it at the beginning of it, in many cases, a letter to King James. Now, he authorized its translation, but it's also because this document is in the public domain. And so Theophilus, I believe, is an actual believer who holds some public 
official standing and Luke, both in his gospel account and in the sequel to his gospel, which is the Acts of the Apostles, addresses his letter to most excellent Theophilus. Now, I said that Acts is the sequel to the gospel. And we get that thought from the first verse, the former treatise have I made, O Theoph. And that's a reference, no doubt, to what? His gospel account, the former treatise, the one I wrote before, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began. And the key word there is the word began. Now, I'm a primitive Baptist, and I believe in the finished work of Christ. But I also believe in the unfinished work of Christ. I believe he began a work that he completed on the cross. But he also began a work in this world that continues to this day. And it's the work of his gospel. It's the work of the church. It's the work of the kingdom of God. And that work that he began as he preached his own everlasting gospel for, 30, for about three and a half years, now you say, what happened to his followers and his cause when he went back to heaven? Did it cease to exist? Did it tuck her out and wind down to where it's no longer relevant? No, my friends. In fact, the work that Jesus began both to do and teach has been carried on by his apostles and through their teachings in the lives of believers that we call the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in all subsequent ages since that time. And it's still taking place today, the cause of Christ. The former treatise, so I like to call the Acts of the Apostles the Gospel according to Luke, Volume 2. Just as a movie sequel often begins with a brief review of where the first movie ended. You know, that's the case in like the Star Wars movies or the Lord of the Rings trilogies. You know, the, you often go back to the last sequence of where the last movie ended to begin the sequel. So the first chapter of Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus Christ, and that's where Luke's gospel ended. In the 24th chapter of Luke, we read in verse number 46, or verse number 49, I should have said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Does that language sound familiar? We just read from Acts chapter 1, wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes upon you. Jesus said to his disciples, these are the red letters, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. I want you to wait. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not easy for me to wait. I'm an activist. And um, if somebody has a problem, I want to find the solution and let's get to it. You know, my life, is, life comes at you fast. My life has passed more quickly than I ever thought that it would. One day I woke up and I'm three score. And I have to say that uh, 
if I'm going to get anything done, I need to get to it. <laughs> because uh, life passes by so quickly. Yesterday, I was just a little boy with my new aluminum baseball bat. And, um, you know, hitting home runs over the back fence and thinking that I was the next Johnny Bench. Some of you kids don't know who I'm talking about. And shame on you parents for not teaching your kids about Johnny Bench. But the fact is, my friends, today, I have to tell you that uh, life has come at me very quickly. And waiting is not easy for me. And for these early disciples who had just seen their Savior crucified and now they have been with him for 40 days after his resurrection, now they're told to wait until God sends the Holy Spirit upon you, until you're endued with power from on high. They didn't know how long they would have to wait. Now we know how long they waited today with 2020 New Testament hindsight. We see they waited about 10 days between the 40 days after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost, which the Feast of Pentecost took place 50 days after the Passover, we know that they waited about 10 days in Jerusalem. And what did they do while they were waiting? Well, one of the things they did is they decided to choose a replacement for Judas Iscariot. Peter came up with the idea in Acts chapter 1, verses 14 and to the end of the chapter, that they needed to fill the vacated apostolic office of Judas Iscariot and they ended up taking a poll they ended up taking a vote between two candidates and they and the lot fell upon Matthias and you say why does the book of Acts begin basically in its narrative section now verses 1 through 11 is the prologue but the narrative actually begins in the 12th verse and continues to the rest of the book why does it begin with a church business meeting that doesn't sound very exciting. A conference meeting in which they take a vote as to who will replace Judas Iscariot. And I suggest for consideration because the purpose of this book is to show that the apostles, the 12 apostles, the apostolic office was a transitional and foundational office in the ongoing life of the church. Now, I don't want to get real technical here, but the fact is that Jesus Christ was his own, he preached his own gospel throughout his public ministry until near the very end. And do you remember near the very end, on two occasions, he dispatched the apostles out to try preaching on their own. He sent out his students, it's time for you to get some field work, you know, it's time for you to get some practice. You're going to be preaching after I'm gone. I've been the preacher up until this point. And the first group he sends out is the, are the 12. He sends out the 12. And he told them not to go into any city of the Samaritans, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was, that was the commission to the 12, and it was a Jewish commission. Then he sent out the 70. And so, and he sent them out by two and two. That's 35 groups of two. 
All right, 70 divided by two is what? 35, you're sharp this morning. <laughs> and he sent them out again to the Jewish people and they got their preaching, they got exercise, they were able to exercise their preaching gifts. And they came home, remember with this glowing report, Luke chapter 10, Lord, even the spirits were subject to us through thy name. That is, we hit a home run every time we got up to bat. Sounds like uh, the late leader of North Korea, not the, new, not the guy that's in there now, but his dad who said that he didn't dare compete in the Olympics when his team, when uh, North Korean was represented in the Olympics, he said, I, I, I couldn't dare compete because nobody else would be able to, to uh, participate. He said, if I was on the golf team, I'd make a hole-in-one on every hole. Well, that, these young preachers came home and they said, uh, we were just, I mean, nobody preached like we ever has preached like we did. And by the way, preachers, and I know this from personal experience, have a way of exaggerating their own performance. <laughs> I've done it many times. There have been times I thought, Woo, man, I preached this morning. I go home and listen to the recording, and I think that was the poorest excuse for a sermon I've ever heard. Burn the tapes, you know. <laughs> but, the, but Jesus was sending them out. And the apostolic office, the apostles, were personal representatives, deputies of Jesus. He deputized these men. He gave them the authority that he had. He delegated his authority to them. Now, there are no apostles today. Let me rephrase that. There are no apostles on earth today. Paul and Peter and James and John through the th are still our apostles in heaven. That is, and we have their writings. But he was using them to give us the New Testament. But the apostles had authority. Now, I don't have authority like that. I'm a pastor but I'm a servant of the church. I don't have the authority to regulate and to govern how the churches function, and no other minister does today either. But you may know that there are some groups that teach apostolic succession. They teach that perhaps a particular leader of the religion is the vicar of Christ who speaks ex cathedra, that is, with authority, the same authority that the apostles had. My friends, there are no vicars or representatives of Jesus Christ on this earth today. The only authority we have is, thus saith the word of God. So we call this book the Acts of the Apostles. Because it is the action. You like, do you like action movies? I do. I like them better than romance movies. Now, there was a time I liked romance movies, but, uh, but then uh, I, I got over it. <laughs> and uh, I like uh, feel-good movies, but I like action movies. If you like action, the book of action, the book of Acts is for you because it is truly a book of activity. It's a book of these apostles preaching and moving and going about to carry on the work that Jesus Christ had engaged in during his public ministry in this world, and he has now delegated that work to them to keep it going in the world. 
And what began, my friends, as a little nucleus of Christian influence in the city of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago is now in Alabama, and it is in North Carolina, and it is in Texas, and it is in Africa, and it is in the Philippines, and it is throughout these United States of America. And we are wanting this kingdom of God, this work of the gospel church, to continue and to progress and to increase, are we not? Until Jesus comes again. Now the book of Acts is therefore the only divinely inspired church history that has ever been written. You say, what about Hassel's church history? I love Hassel's church history. But all you have to do is read page one to know it's not divinely inspired. Because Mr. Hassel, Brother Hassel, God bless his memory, teaches the day-age theory of creation in Acts chapter, in the first, on the first page of Hassel's history. That is, no doubt he had been influenced by the, by the new science, the geologic columns of the antediluvian, I mean of the Mesozoic and the Cenozoic and the Paleozoic eras of geology. And uh, he, he says that the days in Genesis chapter 1 are long ages. Now, I'm, I'm a six-day, 24-hour creationist, a young earth creationist. Anytime the numerical adjective one, two, or three appears before the word day in the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, it's always a 24-hour period, and there's no reason that the first chapter of Genesis should be any different. Always. But anyway, I love Hassel, and love is history, but it's not divinely inspired. But here is an infallible, inerrant, divinely inspired and preserved record of the history of the church. And it covers about 30 years from the ascension of Christ until Paul's imprisonment in, in Rome. Acts chapter 28. And have you ever thought that if the book of Acts was not in our New Testament you would go immediately from the life and ministry of Jesus in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the next book would be what? Romans. How did the church get, it, get to Rome? You go, you've gone from Jerusalem all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to, the, to Rome. How did it get there? Well, the book of Acts shows us that it moved northward to Antioch of Syria, and then it moved into Macedonia and Greece and Corinth. And finally, it moved all the way into Italy, to Rome. The book of Acts describes that in 30 years, what began as a small nucleus has now expanded into the entire known and inhabited world. The church of Jesus Christ is on the move. And it all begins with the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1, 9 through 11, again, he says, I don't know that I ever read that passage from Luke chapter 24, but you can read it because the clock will beat me if I'm not careful. But he says, you men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? And I often thought that that question was unnecessary. I mean, if you'd just seen somebody levitate, <laughs> wouldn't you be watching to see maybe if they came back? <laughs> but the angel said, 
basically what they're asking, what they're saying is, this is no time to delay. This is time to get busy. Why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. So it's now time to get busy. So the ascension of Christ, my beloved, is what we would call the inception of the church age. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the church had not already been established. I believe it was established when Jesus was baptized at the hands of John the Baptist in Jordan's River. And uh, that, um, that that was the beginning of the New Testament church. But um, here is the ship of Zion setting sail, if you please, in Acts chapter 1. And um, it begins with the ascension of Christ. Now, we often think about the incarnation of Jesus, his birth and nativity. We think about, of course, the crucifixion of Jesus. That's vital. That's important. We think about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, if we just thought about that in specific terms recently as we celebrated once again Resurrection Sunday. And by the way, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But we just thought about the resurrection. But very few of us think regularly about the ascension of Jesus. But you know what the ascension of Jesus is? When he went back to heaven, it is his coronation. It's coronation day. Just as King David ascended the steps and sat upon the throne. So, my friends, when Jesus Christ went back to heaven according to Daniel chapter 7, the angels brought him near before the Ancient of Days, and there was given to him a crown, a kingdom, dominion, glory, power, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. And to say that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens means that he now occupies the place of ultimate and supreme honor. Jesus Christ is the most politically powerful figure in this universe. Politically speaking, my beloved, he's the sovereign of the skies. The ascension of Christ means that this universe is not running itself on automatic pilot. But one is at the controls. One is in charge. The king is on his throne. We have a king. And he, this king has a kingdom. The ascension of Christ. Jesus went up. You say, I wish he was still here. My friends, the next part of the Acts of the Apostles, the next act in this play shows us that he is still here because his presence is mediated to us through the agency of the Holy Spirit. For the power of the highest has come upon us. We've been baptized with the Holy Ghost. Now, you remember John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.11 that when Jesus comes, I won't be worthy to stoop down and unlatch his shoes. And he says that he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, there will be another immersion of judgment at some point. But He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. When the Holy Ghost comes upon the church. And you know what this means? And we'll try to wrap this up right quickly. It means that the church has not been left to fend for itself. 
or to make it on its own in this world. We have a heavenly helper. If I didn't believe that, I sure wouldn't get up here and try to preach. Because I'm not that egocentric. I mean, I, I, I know that, I mean, it's scary, isn't it, Brother Josh? It's nerve-wracking. I sat there and I thought, I, wanna, I need to take a nap. I want to lay down. Right as Brother Josh was finishing up, I almost said, I think I'll just slip out the back door here. And I've been trying this a long time, but I still haven't quite figured it out. But anyway, uh, it's not, my friends, something that I just enjoy. But I'll tell you, if I didn't believe that there is one who can take what I say and paint my words in technicolor so that you see more and hear more than what I'm saying, so that there's a power to these words that... I couldn't produce by volume or by rapidity in my delivery or by just my personal charisma. But if I didn't believe that there's one who can take my black and white stills and make them into living color reels of movies in your minds and understandings, my friends, then I would be of all preachers most miserable. I'm so glad to believe that I have a heavenly helper. The apostles preach, says Peter, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. And that's why we pray, Lord, please bless the words today so that the people feel the truths, that they see the images. I can tell people that you are a sinner all day long and it will only make them mad. But when the Holy Spirit takes that message and he convicts a person, and they're brought to see their own sins, his or her own sins, then my beloved, that makes a real change and difference in their lives. The church has been given the Holy Ghost from heaven. And then after Jesus went up and the Holy Ghost came down, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, you shall be witnesses, and the word is martyrios, or martyrs. Now martyrdom is to witness by death. And what he's saying here is you're to sacrifice your lives for my cause and kingdom. You're to die. Die out to self. Die out to your own agenda. Die out to your own ambition and be my witnesses in this world. Yes, my friends, whether it's through actual martyrdom in a physical sense, which some of the Christians and Church history have had to do so. In fact, even Stephen, by the time we finish Acts chapter 7, has died as a martyr, as a witness. Or whether it's spending our lives, loving not our lives unto the death, but hazarding our own safety for the cause of Christ. Whatever it is, my beloved, may I say each of us is called to sacrifice our own ego, our own agenda, our own dreams and ambitions, our own comfort and safety for the propagation, the promotion of the gospel of the kingdom and the glory of Jesus Christ. The church went out. They start by going out after Pentecost. They go out to the temple and they meet this beggar, Acts 3, you remember, who's sitting there by the gates of the temple and he's lame and everybody in the community knows him. He's been a fixture there for many years and Peter and John say, we don't have any money to give you. But what we do have, 
were willing and ready to give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk, and they healed the man. Now, of course, if he can walk, he can now get a job, right, and support his family. He doesn't have to beg anymore. They gave him something more, better than physical, uh, than physical charity. They gave him, and of course, by the time that they've preached in Acts 3 and explained it to the people, the number of the disciples has grown to 5,000. And then oppression, persecution begins as the authorities call them on the carpet. They put Peter and John in jail overnight. And the next day they threaten them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter and John go back to the church and they say, well, we might as well close up shop, brethren, because they've told us we can't have, have church. No, they didn't say that. They went back and they said, let's, get, let's bow in prayer. And they prayed that God would give them boldness. And the Lord answered with, by shaking the actual facility in which they were gathered. The, the walls, the rafters shook. There was the, they were filled with the presence of God with holy boldness. And they went out preaching even further. And by the time you reach Acts chapter 9, their chief opponent has been converted. God has changed the life of Saul of Tarsus. And by Acts 9.31, it says, Then the churches had rest. And walking in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Ghost, they were multiplied. Persecution ceases for a little while. Acts 1 through 11 is Peter's apostolic ministry. Acts 12 and following, or 13 and following, is Paul. So you have two apostles who are in the forefront, Peter and then Paul. But my friends, God used both of them for the spread of the gospel, a cause greater than themselves. Amen. No New Testament letter speaks with greater relevance and urgency regarding what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ in a pagan society than the book of Acts. And as the second coming of the Lord Jesus nears and cultural conditions in our day increasingly parallel the pagan world in which the church was born. I believe that the rediscovery of primitive Christianity as it's revealed in the book of Acts will be a priority. Amen. May God bless us, my friends, to trust a living Savior who went up, a Holy Spirit who came down, and may we be willing to go out in service to Jesus Christ. May God bless you.